Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 9. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they also went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Maker and our Redeemer. There are three really quite distinct pieces in our gospel reading for today, including in that last part some words that sound, well, I mean, bafflingly harsh, right? What we're going to do today is um, kind of dive in and wade through these three parts one at a time, and we'll see what we can see along the way, maybe even do a little unbaffling. The first distinct part is the first verse of our reading for today, Luke 9, 51, which says that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is what a turning point in a story sounds like. Prior to this, at least in Luke's telling of the story, Jesus has been doing all the things he's been doing uh, up around the Sea of Galilee, which is not only not the center of the world, that was, that was Rome, it's not even the center of the comparatively small Jewish world, that was Jerusalem. Galilee, on the other hand, was on the northern far reaches of the Jewish world and way on the wrong side of the tracks as far as Jews in Jerusalem were concerned. But Galilee is where Jesus was from. And Galilee is where he began his ministry, healing and preaching and teaching and ushering in, he said, something so not like the kingdoms and empires of this world that he had to give it a whole new name. He called it the kingdom of God. And he described it. And he demonstrated what life was like in it. And what it's like, it turned out, was nothing like the fearful and forceful and coercive power of kingdoms like Rome, for it was rather powerful with the fearless power and, force and, and gods of God's tender mercy and God's healing love, which were not just for the powerful, but were rather for, in fact, even, even to say they were especially for the powerless and the poor those who did live, live on the wrong side of the tracks or the wrong side of the border. But then comes Luke 9:51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. 
This isn't a casual, hey, let's head that way and see if that's any fun kind of thing. No, he set his face. This is a phrase of deliberate intent and resolve and commitment, oftentimes used in the context of anticipated resistance or conflict. It's a phrase that could have been used, in other words, for example, in June of 1944, as troops crossed the English Channel with their faces set to the beaches of Normandy. Jesus here has his set face set for Jerusalem where there is a battle to be fought and he knows it and where the enemy, the enemy in this case whose name is not Germany with its allies, uh, Japan and Italy, but rather is sin and its allies, suffering and death, that enemy is bunkered down and fully armed and waiting for him and he absolutely knows that. Can you see his face here? It's the face of one who will do whatever needs to be done, even if it kills him. Which he had told his disciples just earlier he was fully aware that it would. But nevertheless, here now, face set, he heads toward Jerusalem. Where now comes the second part of our reading, as today going south from Galilee to Jerusalem takes him and his followers toward Samaria and a Samaritan village populated by Samaritans. Jews did not like Samaritans. They steadfastly avoided Samaritans. They believed they had utterly polluted the one true faith. Many Jews actually hated Samaritans so intensely that if they were going from Galilee to Jerusalem, they would have, they would have gone the other way, the extra miles out of the way, just so not to be confronted with this uncleanness of the Samaritans entirely. But not Jesus. He set his face toward Jerusalem via Samaria. Because why? Because there are no us's and them's in the kingdom Jesus came to bring. For God's love and mercy are not just for us and people like us and people who like us and people whom we like. No, God's kingdom intends its borders to be wide open, open to all. Of course, Jews did not just like Samaritans. Samaritans didn't much like Jews either. And so in our reading, it says the Samaritans who locked down their border walls and wouldn't let Jesus in. And two of his disciples said, Lord, do you want us to, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus said, you can do that. No, uh, Jesus actually, it says the Old Testament says the prophet Elijah back in the day actually had done that in a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And Jesus being Jesus, presumably surely could have done that or empowered and blessed James and John to do it for him, but he didn't do that. Instead, it says he rebuked them. And this is a strong word. Jesus rebuked demons and they fled. He rebuked raging winds and waves, and they calmed. He rebuked the devil himself, and he slithered away whence he came. And now he rebukes two of his own. Because why? Because they're not liking, acting like his own. <laughs> they're acting like the world. Jesus, remember, has come to usher in the kingdom of exactly not this world and its ways, but rather the kingdom of God and God's ways. 
only just a couple of chapters ago in a sermon he preached back in Galilee, he had described that way for his followers. Don't just love your friends, he said. Goodness, anybody can do that. Love your enemies, he said. That's where the rubber hits the road in the kingdom of God. And when someone curses you, he says, don't curse their back. Or if they strike you, don't hit them back. That's just acting like everybody else all over again. But you, he said, you're my followers. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Great teachers, of course, don't just teach with the things they say, but also with the things they do and which are consistent with the things they say. And Jesus was as great a teacher as the world has ever known. And his actions were completely consistent with his words. And actions, as wisdom knows, often speak more loudly than words. And so he doesn't bless James and John's request to go off on the Samaritans. Rather, he goes on. The Samaritans cursed him and his party and his enterprise, but he doesn't curse back. And he reigns his party in. By the way, I'm pretty sure that this scene and James and John's give them hell attitude towards Samaritans was on Jesus' mind when just in the very next chapter, still on his way to Jerusalem, he will tell one of his most well-known parables and the hero of which is a person who has become known as a good Samaritan who, as far as Jews were concerned, didn't worship God in the right way, but whom Jesus lifted up as a model of the truth that if you say you love God and worship God, but simultaneously ignore the needs of those most in need, you are not actually somebody who loves and worships God at all. Which takes us to the final section of this text, which is the one that, on first reading anyway, and actually on second reading too, um, as it turns out, it just sounds baffling and harsh. We pick it up at 9.57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Just a quick aside, as a toddler, he and his parents were refugees fleeing for their lives. Now as an adult, he's homeless. I find it helpful to bear that in mind when I consider refugees and the homeless today. Back to the text where to someone else Jesus said, follow me, but he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. As far as you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will, I'll follow you, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So, and by so I mean, wait, what? <laughs> right? Farewells and funerals aren't allowed in this kingdom he's bringing. Love your enemies, but turn your back on your loved ones. What's up with that, right? Well, for starters, what's up is that Jesus here isn't talking about being saved. He's talking, not talking about being welcomed into this kingdom that he is bringing and one day finally and fully at last will bring when he brings heaven to earth and earth to heaven. That, your place in that kingdom is a gift. It is grace. All the work done by him, all the price paid by him. Which of course is why he has set his face to go to Jerusalem and to take up that cross he knows that's waiting for him when he gets there. 
So that's the first thing to realize here. He's not talking about being saved. He's talking about being a disciple. He's talking about following him. About deciding that I'm someone whose faith is not just words, but actions too. And what's going on here, I'm pretty sure, is that Jesus wants naivete to play no part in a decision like that. He wants those who follow him to realize that discipleship is not going to be just an endless traveling Bible camp kind of an experience. For following him, discipleship does require words put into actions, and words put into actions require commitment, and commitment, that is the real thing, at some point will cost you. At some point, it will require sacrifice. And sacrifice, in order not to be a waste, sacrifice, if, and, and the kind of sacrifices he's talking about, which in the case of James and John, would be the sacrifice of their very own lives, are not true sacrifices that are worth sacrificing unless priorities are properly in place. For if priorities aren't properly in place, then, then, then sacrifices like that are not discipleship, but are rather misguided and wasted and oftentimes even ultimately tragic zeal and nothing more. As in, for example, the, the one, the many, the countless actually, whose ultimately highest priority that is being prioritized is money, for which they sacrifice their families and or their values and or their souls. Or look today at those who loudly call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, but whose highest priority is political power, and who, for the sake of political power, will sacrifice pretty much everything Jesus ever said and did to turn him instead into someone, for example, who hates the same Samaritans they do. Then, of course, something surely going on here as well in this baffling passage is surely some hyperbole, right? Some exaggeration for effect. For Jesus doesn't mean... And it just gets plain goofy if you end up saying that he means that if you, for example, want to follow him, you need to leave your job and your house and your family without telling any of them and skip funerals from now on. But he nevertheless is saying, including to you and me, that though many things in life, especially, especially things like family, are important, and are meant to be, and are meant to be cherished as such, nevertheless, even they, even loved ones, even matters of life and death, aren't ultimately as important as what he has set his face toward Jerusalem to do for the sake of God's saving love for you and your family and your Samaritans. After all, a family funeral without the cross and Easter is nothing more than an occasion to gather around memories, which are often fine things, but the only direction they can look is backwards. Funerals with the cross and Easter, on the other hand, are occasions not just for looking backwards with memories, but for looking forward with hope. Speaking of looking forward, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back, Jesus says, is fit for the kingdom of God. 
The imagery is, of course, agricultural and, of course, pre-GPS in tractor cabs. And so in those days, if one was plowing with a team of oxen or such and looked back, you might see straight lines, but the very act of looking back would mean that the next stretch of plowing would drift off course. If you need a non-agricultural non example, think of a family vacation. The map you need is not the one that tells you where you were last, but the one that tells you where to go next. Of course, in my experience, when it comes to where exactly to go next, or what exactly to do next, Jesus is rarely as crystal clear as, for example, Siri. When I ask her, for example, how to get to Disney World or something, and she will tell me absolutely the path, the lefts, the rights, that every twist and turn, she will even warn me about upcoming resistance in the form of traffic or jams or accidents. Jesus, on the other hand, when he says, follow me, doesn't often, in my experience, uh, succinctly, clearly, tell me whether to take a left or a right at the next decision I have to make. And actually, he says to count on resistance sometimes, and sometimes not to drive around it, but to drive, to drive toward it. What he does say, and what he will say again very soon, to Arlo Ellen in the waters of her baptism is I love you. From now until forever I love you. And by the power of my spirit I am with you always come what may come what will. Follow me by loving others in word and deed the way I love you. Sometimes you'll get it wrong. I love you. Sometimes you'll get it right. I love you. Sometimes you won't be sure. Be sure of this. I love you. Don't look back. Look at love. My love for you and for others. And whether you take a left or a right at the next decision, if you make that decision loved and loving, you will be right more often than you even know. Trust me. I love you. Amen.